This is an ABC podcast. The last few months have been full of huge upheaval. Some of us asked to work from home, others let go entirely, while others left somewhere in the middle. With some bosses making requests that can leave you asking, is that legal? Or if I refuse this, will I lose my job? I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're diving into the murky waters of what your boss can and can't ask you to do during this pandemic, and what you can ask them in return. And then we'll dig into the art of negotiating what you want and deserve at work. Zana, by the way, is the executive director of not-for-profit organisation JobWatch that provides free legal advice for workers. Zana, welcome. Good morning, Lisa. Dana, now you have been at JobWatch for 20 years. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and, and I know that this is one of the busiest moments um, in your career. What are the most common queries that you're getting at the moment at JobWatch? Oh, well, yes, you're right. So busy. We've been inundated calls. And may I say that at the moment, um, they're all basically the calls that receive about 36,000 per annum. They've been exclusively COVID-19 and JobKeeper related. Basically, the calls that we're getting is that some people are concerned that they're not getting their full JobKeeper entitlements. They're concerned that it's not being passed on. They're not getting the full benefit of the $1,500. Some employees have been asked to decrease their hours so that the employer doesn't have to top up their wage. Other employees have been asked to increase their hours so that if, for example, you were working 10 hours per week, I might want to increase your hours so that you earn your JobKeeper payment so that if you were getting $1,000 per fortnight and now getting $1,500 per fortnight, then I'm basically saying, well, listen, you need to earn that additional amount, so can you increase your hours? May I say that increasing your hours is unlawful. An employer cannot ask an employee to increase their hours and also they cannot unilaterally reduce their rate of pay, meaning their hourly rate. Let's hear from a private sector worker. He's 30 years old and we're calling him Adam to avoid any possible repercussions of him speaking out about his experience. Hi, uh, I'm Adam and in late March, all the employees of our company were requested to take a day of annual leave every week for the month of April in order to assist the company. It was framed as a request, but there was no room really to reject the request or to ask too many questions. Since April, May, and then in June, that request was continued, but with less of an emphasis on the request and more of a, here are the dates that you need to be taking off this month. Susanna, is this legal? Can Adam's employers force him to take annual leave? Under JobKeeper, for example, employers can make certain directions. They can stand employees down, meaning they can reduce their hours or tell them to stay at home because there's no work. They can, in fact, direct that their duties be changed and they can direct that their location be changed. But when it comes to annual leave, that has to be a request. It needs to be an agreement. The employee must consider 
the request and then not unreasonably refuse the request. But ultimately, um, as Adam's found, the objective here is for the employee to retain their job, to keep working. And so it's, it would be reasonable for an employer to say, look, take annual leave in order to continue employment. How common is Adam's experience when it comes to people calling Job Watch? Has forced annual leave been common? Oh, extremely common. It is um, it is a mechanism um, by which, you know, employers can say, look, during this time when I do not have any work for you, basically you can take your annual leave. But what needs to be noted is at the conclusion of all this that the employee will be left with reduced leave other than the two weeks which must remain the balance by the conclusion of that period of time the annual leave will be reduced and the other thing that needs to be noted that this particular arrangement is temporary so we don't want a scenario where employees are continuing to erode their annual leave it needs to have an end time Uh, What do you think the rights are really of an employee in this situation? Because it didn't sound like Adam really had the freedom, like it didn't really feel like a request, let's be honest. Well, that's, yes, that's exactly right, Lisa. And let me just say that any of these arrangements at the moment that are being negotiated, when we use the word agreement or negotiation, it's not really that kind of environment. There's such a huge power imbalance. Desperate workers are uncertain about their health. They're uncertain about their future. So basically, when an employer either requests or directs, they will, of course, be doing what they're asked to do. Slowly but surely, workplaces are starting to open up and there's a lot to ask about returning to work. Do I have to go into the office? Is hot desking gone forever? Can I keep my reduced workload? So let's hear from Adam again, who says that there's been a silver lining in his work during the pandemic. How it's actually turned out, working four days has been really great and it's made the weeks a lot easier to deal with. We haven't really found as a team that our work has really been affected at all. All of our KPIs and um, tasks that we've had to do have been met quite easily. I haven't noticed that our team performance has been negatively impacted by having that day off. And I think through company surveys, one of the things that's come out of this has been that everyone across the board has been quite keen to keep the working from home going at least a day or two a week if possible. Zana, does Adam have any legal right to continue to work from home if the rest of his team go back to the main office? The return to work will largely depend on whether it's a reasonable and lawful direction. So it is, Lisa, unfortunately, in general, probably a lawful and reasonable direction to require an employee to return to the workplace. But it is, of course, subject always to occupational health and safety laws. So in these circumstances, there must be strict compliance that when employees return, that um, measures such as, you know, cleanliness, cleaning of the hands, and that the workplace has basically made the environment as safe as possible. So, if that is ticked off, etc., and it's reasonable for the employee to return, that, of course, means that they will return. However, under the Fair Work Act, Lisa, there is a right to request flexible working arrangements. And that applies for people with um, 
care responsibilities, family responsibilities, also applies for people with disabilities, applies to people 55 and older, and also people experiencing family and domestic violence. So basically, you can, in fact, request, if you fall within these categories, request flexible working arrangements, and in these circumstances, an employer cannot unreasonably refuse. But generally speaking, if um, you don't sort of fit those categories and you're requesting flexible working arrangements, it is, as I said, lawful for an employer to require you to return to work. And if you didn't, and it wasn't reasonable for you not to return, then you may suffer the consequences of unfair dismissal. And have you got a specific case, Zana, when there might be an exception to this rule? So, for example, one of our clients, she has in fact, a, a heart condition. As a consequence of that, she worked um, 10 hours per week, meaning she had very reduced hours. In addition, she had to care for her husband at home who was terminally ill. So, in her circumstances, working from home became far easier for in terms of caring for her husband and also minimising the risks to her health. So there is a perfect example of someone who could say, well, listen, I've been working from home. It's working extremely well. You would be exposing me to risk and also my husband in me coming to work to risk. Therefore, given my circumstances, I do not think it's reasonable to return to the workplace. And really, Lisa, that circumstance, an employer would be hard pressed to force the employee to return. And if they did, you know, there may be consequences to the employer. And what about Adam doing a four-day week, but seemingly doing his full-time role in that time? Let's say he says, oh, this is preferable. I can actually do all of my work in four days. Can he now go back to his employer and say, hey, I'd like to have my same pay for one day less a week? So Adam's working four days per week. I'm assuming before that he was five days a week. One important thing is that his um, employment conditions have been changed. His days have been reduced. One important thing for everybody, if there's one thing to take out of this today, make sure that this arrangement is temporary, meaning that come September or any date that there is an end date so that you have the ability to return to your full-time employment and your full-time wage. If in fact you've agreed to vary that arrangement, you might find that you're stuck with it. But yes, in Adam's situation, if he sort of said, look, I would like to continue this um, working four days a week, but working that those days and being paid for four days, but not in fact working a workload of five days per week, then once again, that's an arrangement he can come to with his employer. So how will things change in terms of employer and employee rights when JobKeeper ends on September 28th? You know, effectively, if you're not on JobKeeper, the ordinary provisions of the Fair Work Act apply. And of course, people need to know what they, what they are because it won't be the case. Your employer won't be able to direct you to stand down and change your duties and change your location. And if they continue to do so, then it's unlawful. So employers may be getting giddy with the power that they've had under JobKeeper and then being stripped oh. of those powers. We want to make sure that they're not giddy with it and not acting unlawfully and um, telling their employees to act in a certain way when they, you know, they 
don't have to. That um, transition will be really important. And we're very concerned because I'm sure these contracts that have been entered into, Lisa, whereby there's a variation of contract, have in fact been done in a way where the employee has no choice, but um, Mm. they're stuck with them. So we'll have a lot of contractual disputes as well, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Zana. It's an absolute pleasure, Lisa. Zana, by the way, is the Executive Director of the not-for-profit organisation JobWatch, providing employment rights legal advice. So we're now well-schooled on our legal rights, but what if, like Adam, you want to continue to work from home if it's not been standard practice at your organisation? How do you get your boss on board? Dr. Ruchi Sinha is an organisational psychologist from the University of South Australia, and she's been researching negotiation success in the work context. Ruchi, what are some of the myths that you've found around negotiating flexible work? There are a couple of myths around negotiations in general, and one around negotiating flexibility is that it's all about the location and the schedule of work. So Mm. a lot of people approach um, negotiations with their bosses talking about where they work from. Can they work a few days away or can they work from home? Can they work early in the day or late in the day? But we think from our research, we know that if you go so narrow into a negotiation, you're less likely to be successful. And so one way to successfully negotiate is to broaden the set of issues that you're talking about. And that's where we talk about job crafting, that negotiating flexibility is not just about where and when, but what you do and how your job is going to be evaluated, how is it going to be monitored, and how is the performance going to be judged. All of those conversations are part of negotiating flexibility. And what else can you say to make it harder for your boss to say no to a request for more job flexibility? What we're saying is that if you're negotiating and crafting your job, To make it more conducive to flexibility, you're more likely. So, for example, you could have a discussion or a negotiation around the scope of the tasks, how you bundle your tasks together, whether there are certain tasks that are more individual effort oriented, where you could potentially do it without meetings and and interdependencies. And so having those conversations both around your deliverables as well as your coordination Uh, with other team members is what will make your boss say yes or no to giving you flexibility. And we know that what you say at the negotiation table is important, but how you plan and prepare for it is 50% of your success. So one of the things we know is when you ask for something, it could be something that is within the policy of your organization. So being aware of what flexibility policies exist, how they have been potentially used in the past, under what conditions is the first step. The second step is to actually plan with other stakeholders who you anticipate are going to get affected by your work arrangement. So this is where I think talking to your team members, understanding the interdependencies between roles. So not just being focused on this is what I need, this is how I'll make it happen, but going to your boss saying, this is what I need. This is how I'm going to help others make things happen. And this is the technology that I think I will use. Like this is the platform I will use to coordinate work, to report on things, are some ways in which you can plan for it. So what are some of the other pieces that I need to have thought about before I go in? 
one of the biggest things we could do is to document your success. So go in with evidence, which means a lot of us have been working from home and working flexibly due to the COVID pandemic. We could absolutely make a table of things that we have achieved due to this flexibility. Show how things have gotten fast track, things that might have been on the back burner, you were able to address because you got this time to work according to your own schedule. And the last thing I would say is one of the success factors for negotiations are to anticipate and have take the perspective of your boss and think about what could be the sticking points that they might bring up. So one of the concerns bosses typically have is fairness. All right. So if you get X arrangement, how will others feel? What will happen if everyone starts asking for it? So anticipating these things and having some rationale for how your ask, your negotiation ask is going to impact these factors will make you more persuasive. And then adding to that, what sort of mindset or how should we prepare our energy going into these chats? One of the things we know from research is that people are often nervous and anxious about making the ask because they are afraid of hearing a no. So one of the mindsets you can have is that you are not negotiating and a no is not unsuccessful outcome. You are making an ask, you're taking that first step, and sometimes it takes multiple asks before you get the outcome. And you learn from every ask. So people have to change their mindset on believing this is my one choice, one opportunity. And if I, um, you know, mess it up, that's it. I'm never going to be able to get it again. So let's move now on to gender differences when it comes to negotiation, specifically in relation to pay. A recent HBR article found that according to research, there's a social cost for women who try to negotiate their pay, but much less for men. Has your research found the same thing? Absolutely, it has. It's often called the social backlash. And so the cost is that there is a negative reaction to women initiating negotiations, as well as women asserting themselves when they ask. As unfortunate as it is, I think the only way we can resolve this unfortunate thing is to first accept it. So for a very long time, prior to this social backlash effect being researched, most people blamed the woman. Oftentimes, the literature as well as, you know, public media would talk about women just need to be more aspirational. They just need to develop more confidence. And, you know, they just need to be like men. They just need to assert themselves more. And if they do that, the problem will be solved. And for a very long time, when women did that, they found that others saw them as pushy. They saw them as aggressive. They didn't like women who asserted themselves. And so researchers started looking into, and some of our work also starts looking into, is this uncomfortable feeling that women face where they're nervous about asking? Is it because of their confidence or is it a well-founded fear? You know, they are just reacting and being cautious because they know what the reaction is going to be. And we find in our work that it is a well-founded fear that women do not like to be seen in a certain light, which is you're too pushy, you're aggressive, you're not likable, you're not caring, and all of those gender stereotypes that we have. So absolutely, there's differential treatment and how the counterpart reacts when men versus women negotiate. 
What strategies then do you suggest? There are quite a few well-researched ways to get out of this. And I'm going to have to say that a lot of those strategies are sort of pushed onto the individual. They are um, not about changing the system. However, I just want to make that clear that we need to, one, stop reacting negatively to different genders. But given that we live in a world that is not drastically going to change in a few years, the strategies include balancing what we call warmth and competence. So just going back a little, we know across cultures and societies, there are certain gender stereotypes. So, and they're going to sound awful, but I'm going to say them because they happen to exist, which is that men are to be assertive, competitive, ambitious, uh, while women are supposed to be more nurturing and empathetic and a good listener and so forth. So if you think of society having these impressions, when women act in more masculine ways, which is assertive, ambitious and competitive, then they get the social backlash that's when they are seen as unlikable. So the solution to that is they have to be able to balance both the expectations of being nurturing, empathetic and caring, which are not bad traits to have. They're not bad traits to have in general as a human or a negotiator. So the way we talk about it in research is you have to balance the I and the we. And so what does nurturing, caring mean is that you care about other people's interests. And we talked about this. As a good negotiator, you must show that. You must show that you care about the other party's interests. And so if women go in to negotiate their salary, if they frame their ask, not just I want flexibility or I want higher pay, but this is how it's going to help the larger group of stakeholders. And I think that is something we found from research that balances and reduces social backlash. Mm, I can see that being a very helpful strategy for anyone who wants to negotiate, actually, to take on both (laughs) perspectives. Absolutely. But with men and women, the only difference is that women need to set the stage with we and then follow it up with an I. Versus if men didn't follow it, uh, just set the stage with, I would like this, they are actually seen as, you know, they fend for themselves, they're confident and, and so forth. But with women, it's slightly biased. With the same behavior, they get far more backlash. And do you think there's anything that we can do to level the playing field? Do you think maybe making bosses more aware of this? There are absolutely a lot of things you can do at an organizational level. So one of the things we find in our research that women are more nervous and less likely to ask for higher pay is because they don't have enough information on what is acceptable and legitimate in terms of how much more can they ask for. And so we know that if organizations have more transparency around pay, where they actually encourage all men and women to initiate such asks rather than leaving it for individual personalities to decide. We know that women feel more confident and structurally are less hesitant to ask. So if you want gender equity at the workplace and you want to reduce the gender pay gap as an organization, you can lay out the data to help women prepare themselves to ask. So they don't feel that it is illegitimate to ask. 
And have you heard about the research or have you done your own about women negotiating on behalf of others being a more successful strategy than on behalf of themselves? Absolutely. And even in our own research uh, where we interviewed about 60 women about their lived experience of everyday negotiations, very quickly they said, I need this for my team. I need this resource. And I, I tried to ask for more budget or, you know, everyday negotiation, get professional development training budget to upskill my employees. And I have no problem asking f- that, but I have a problem asking for a higher pay for myself. So when we dug into their thinking, we very quickly realized that women actually are quite assertive, aspirational when they represent others at negotiation. And this is what representational negotiation research shows, that when women advocate for others, they have none of those biases working against them, neither their confidence bias nor the backlash. It's because it fits the stereotype that women are caring, nurturing, and empowering of others. So it's very important that these things are all linked. Why do women face backlash? It's because if you act for yourself, then you're not fitting the gender stereotype. But when you act on behalf of others, then you're very much fitting it and therefore you're liked for it. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ruchi Sinha, organisational psychologist from the University of South Australia's School of Management. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave us a review, like the one we got from ex-yogi who says, we're not too long, not too short, Just right. (laughs) That's a relief. That's it from us, but we'd love to hear your experience of negotiating at work. I'm Lisa Leong, and this Working Life's producer is Maria Magic Tickle. Follow us on LinkedIn. We'll have a link to this story on our profiles where you can leave a comment. Until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.